Well, the first verse this morning says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And so I have two confessions I'd like to make right at the beginning here. I am seriously afraid of heights, and Sheila seriously isn't. And I wasn't really aware of the seriousness of my fear until we were on our honeymoon. And uh, we were outside Vancouver, British Columbia, and we decided to take the gondola up to the top of Grouse Mountain. And you get into the gondola in sort of a dark cave-like area, and you can't really see very clearly what's going on. And as the gondola begins to move out in daylight, I got my first inkling of the seriousness of my fear of heights, and I was suddenly on the verge of panicking. Because as you move out into the sunlight, that you realize that you're going to be making a 1.8-mile ascent up to the top of the mountain for 12 minutes in a gondola that's made entirely of plexiglass. And looking down through the plexiglass floor, even within the first 10 or 15 feet, I realized that I had made a huge mistake. And if you have a fear of heights, I would suggest that you not take that gondola ride. Of course, what made it worse was Sheila was totally relaxed, and she was sitting across from me going, Oh, honey, isn't this beautiful? Look at this. This is so wonderful. Don't you love it? And I'm saying, no. The only thing I could think about was, for the next 12 minutes, I'm going to be terrified of my fear of heights. Well, I was as close as I could ever be, or have ever been, I think, to being in a state of panic. But thinking back, as I was thinking about what I wanted to say this morning, I realized that that state of fear didn't make me cry out to God for his Refuge, strength, and help. While preparing for the sermon, I couldn't really actually get beyond the first verse of Psalm 46 without asking myself several questions. And I'd like you to consider these questions in your own life as well, if you wouldn't mind. For example, how serious does my perception of an event need to be before I think I'm in the kind of trouble that requires me to seek God's protection from it? Do I need to experience more fear than I did that day on the gondola to put an event into that category of needing God's protection, strength, and help? Furthermore, if I find myself in a situation that's causing me to fear, do I also tend to wonder if God is actually in control of that situation? Would I even bother to seek God's protection, refuge, and help in a situation that I didn't think he had control over? What kind of trouble becomes serious enough then for us to seek God's refuge, protection, and strength? I think the psalmist in this psalm is making it very clear that we're talking about serious trouble. We're talking about the kind of trouble where it looks like chaos is going to reign, where panic is just around the corner. 
This psalm seems to be speaking about any kind of chaotic trouble similar to a natural disaster that might cause enough fear in us that it might interfere with our complete trust and faith that God is in control of this world and everything in it. And I think the take-home message from Psalm 46 is this. Great faith is a refusal to panic in the midst of chaos and fear because you realize that God is in control even when chaos is brewing and your fear is starting to overwhelm you. Because when you know that God is the sovereign ruler in this world, then you also know that he has the power and the authority and the command over it. Great faith is a refusal to panic when chaos is brewing because you know that God is in control. Even when it looks like things are starting to get out of control. So let me give you some context for the title. This is a psalm according to Alamoth. The word Alamoth means virgin or young woman. And it's supposed reference, I think, to the kind of soprano voices that were chosen to sing this song. And you'll notice that it's a psalm of the sons of Korah. And understanding the context of what happened with Korah is very important to understanding what's going on in this psalm. Psalm 46 was written, it says, by the sons of Korah, who happened to be among the survivors of a series of miraculous God-ordained disasters. The Korahites were in charge of being the gatekeepers to the entrance to the tabernacle. That was their assigned role as Levites. Second Chronicles says that they were an important branch of the temple singers. Korah himself was a son of Itzhar, a Levite, and he decided to get together with three other men from the tribe of Reuben, Dathan, Abiram, and On, and they decided to revolt against Moses and Aaron in Numbers 16. These four men happened to lead a larger group of 250 men, presumably representatives from all the other tribes in Israel, in this revolt against Moses and Aaron. And they come to Moses and they're arguing that all of the community of the Levites are holy and set apart to lead Israel in its worship. And so Moses and Aaron shouldn't hold elevated positions of leadership. Maybe Korah was jealous over his lower tier priestly responsibility and status. Maybe he's attempting to usurp his cousin Moses's position and install a new priesthood. Korah's position as leader in this rebellion was evidently the result of maybe a personal character flaw. He was a bold, haughty, and even ambitious man. So he comes to Moses and Moses says, okay, you've got a good point. Why don't we let Yahweh decide who he wants to be his leaders? It won't be up to me and you. So he says, tomorrow you guys show up at the tabernacle with your incense burners, and we'll see what happens. We'll see what God decides. 
Now, in the meantime, before that happens, Moses seeks Yahweh's input, and of course Yahweh wants to just to destroy the entire rebellious community, but Moses intervenes for them. So Korah and his 250 buddies took their incense burners to the tabernacle the next day, and they let God decide whether Moses and Aaron or Korah and his followers would be set aside for this special service. And so Moses says to the congregation, as they're gathering to see what's going to happen, if these men die naturally by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all their belongings, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. And then, as I'm certain you can understand, as soon as Moses finishes speaking, it happens exactly as he said it would happen. And so God's there waiting in front of all the congregation of Israel that's watching. And there's the sons of Korah there as well. And they all watch the Lord rain down fire on Korah and 250 of Korah's buddies, killing them all. And then the sons of Korah watched some of the wives and the children and the sons of those 250 men get swallowed up in an earthquake designed for judgment and get delivered alive into Sheol. And then as if that's not convincing enough, the next day the people blame Moses and Aaron for the destruction of the rebels in Numbers 16, to 50. And then God brings a plague that kills 14,700 people, and only Aaron's intervention as priest halts Yahweh's wrath against his own people. And we're not sure from the text why the children of Korah were not among those who were destroyed with their father. They might have survived judgment because they weren't of the tribe of Reuben. Some commentators say that. And so it's really quite interesting indeed that Psalm 41, written by the surviving sons of Korah, who were not killed as part of God's judgment, begin the psalm by saying, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That's an amazing way to start off the psalm. And folks, if we're going to be honest with the text and we're going to think theologically, it crosses our minds that God certainly wasn't the refuge and the strength of Korah and the 250 men that sided with his bad choice to be rebellious. And God certainly wasn't a very present help in trouble to them. God actually caused their trouble. He's the direct cause of the fire raining down in judgment on the people. He's the direct cause of the earth opening up in judgment and swallowing the people and all their possessions into Sheol. He's the direct cause of a plague that kills 14,700 people. So we're left asking, asking the question after this first verse, then, 
Under what circumstances is God someone's refuge, strength, and help in trouble? When he certainly wasn't everyone's refuge and strength and help. And the response is the same in virtually every psalm, isn't it? Any believer who calls out to God seeking his protection, refuge, and strength, God rescues. He saves them. He cares for them. He delivers them. He brings them out of the pit. He comforts them. And that's the message of Psalm 46 as well. God is the only true refuge. His ear is ever open because he hears, as we heard in the song this morning. His hand is ever stretched out because he defends his people. And interestingly enough, I don't think we really appreciate that. The reason we're where we are at the moment we cry out is because it is in the troubles of life that the believer finds out all that God really is to him. And so the sons of Korah survive the judgment in Numbers 16 so that they can write a psalm from experience declaring that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. But only after they've witnessed his absolute sovereign control over this world and the people who live in it. There's no doubt in the sons of Korah experience that the chaos and the trouble they witnessed came directly from God's intervention in his hand. So let's look more intently at Psalm 46 then and sort of pull it apart to get a better understanding of what they're saying to us. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. Selah. Lift that idea up to God, take a musical pause, reflect on what you've just read and sung about. And to be honest with you, it wasn't initially obvious to me what kind of trouble this psalm was talking about. The word translated trouble in Hebrew has a wide range of connotations. Most of the time it suggests an intense inner struggle and turmoil. Literally, it means to be in such a narrow or confining space that your movement is restricted. It's tight. Trouble is comparable to the pain that a woman experiences delivering her first child, which she's not experienced yet. It refers to the personal anguish one encounters in adverse conditions. It can refer to the trouble that comes as a result of bad dreams that result in one's sleeplessness. It can refer to the trouble that God promises will come to men who do evil with their hands, which seems initially to be what this psalm is about. Or the internal anguish or trouble that results from wrong decisions that we make, 
we struggle with the decision we made and wonder about what will result from that. Or in this case, the decisions that Korah and his followers made. Or it may refer to the strong emotional anguish that one experiences when he's pressed in by his enemies. And so the first section of the psalm, verses 1 to 3, testifies to the people that they should have confidence in Yahweh in the midst of the turmoil of some chaotic, catastrophic event. And then verses 2 to 3 depict creation sort of in utter disarray, earthquakes, storms, floods, even a tsunami. The roaring sea is one of those stock motifs in the Psalms for chaos. In the first verses of this psalm, the churning water threatens to overwhelm the order that God had established at creation. And so one begins to panic, wondering if God is really holding creation together like he did when he created it. And it's highly likely that ancient Israel probably understood all of these natural phenomena as forces of chaos. And as such, they convey an anxiety that the world seems to be slipping out of God's control. So how shall we understand the level of trouble in this psalm? Let me mention three things here. First, considering the language at the beginning of the psalm and the reference to it being written by the sons of Korah in the judgment of fire and the plagues and being swallowed up into Sheol, it seems like the particular trouble in this psalm might be some chaotic, catastrophic event, albeit brought about by God's judgment. But here it could just as easily mean a number of different things. Calamity, destruction, ruin, Disaster, distress, doom, downfall. All those words are translated for trouble in the Old Testament. It seems like it speaks to some event that terrorizes us because its sheer chaos challenges our faith that God may not be in control of this world. Well, the second idea here is that this just happens to be Luther's favorite psalm, and it's the basis for him writing the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is a rather free paraphrase of Psalm 46. And if you remember the words to that hymn, Luther focuses on a particular trouble he's reminded of when this psalm motivates him to write A Mighty Fortress. For Luther, it's trouble with a capital T. Do you remember what trouble he's reminded of? Let's look at the words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Here it is. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Then verse 3 of the hymn, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed 
his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And as much as I usually respect Luther's theology, and I continue to, when he saw the world's chaos and disarray as probably coming from Satan's rage, (coughs) excuse me, threatening to undo us, I want to remind us of something. Folks, this is God's world. No matter what or who is threatening to undo us. He is the sovereign ruler of this world. It doesn't matter if the chaos is satanic or natural or divinely miraculous. This is God's world. And just as a reminder, Satan happens to be God's Satan. Satan has God's leash around his neck. Satan needs permission from the God of this world to threaten to undo us. Well, the third idea of trouble here comes when we understand the reference in the last section to the Lord of hosts and other clues later on in the psalm that refer to the terror of an approaching enemy army. And in case this hasn't quite registered yet, and it seems a little antiquated as a 20th century threat, just imagine the chaos and the terror you would sense if you saw foreign tanks and armed soldiers marching down Canyon Creek Road this morning, firing their weapons at New Life congregants. Your world would suddenly become undone. And I'm guessing that this would seem a pretty serious trouble to most of us. And this was certainly a serious trouble to the prophets of Israel. But even if this were to happen to us today, why would we imagine that suddenly God was on vacation and taking a respite from his sovereign control? Then the next stanza here from verses 4 to 7 is really interesting. He says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Take a musical pause and reflect that idea that you just sang up to the Lord. And so in the first three verses, we see the calling for confidence in God in the face of any kind of monumental trouble we might be under, whether they be from natural calamities or divine judgments, or even, as Luther thought, from Satan. And now in verses 4 to 7, the psalmist shifts from a cosmic collapse or chaos to political turmoil, where the chaos is seen in the collapse of nations that are in an uproar. 
The mention of the city of God is a reference to Zion. This and several other psalms are called Zion psalms. And now the psalm begins to encourage us that the people of God don't need to fear the calamities and tumults of nature and the nations because the people are defended by God who reigns in his city, Zion. He's on the throne in his city, and that should bring great comfort to them. And this is the part of the psalm that begins to answer the question that I asked earlier. Under what circumstances is God someone's refuge, strength, and help in trouble? And we can't really get a sense of what the psalm is suggesting in this second stanza until we realize what happens in Zion and its many references in the Old Testament. But just let me help you think through a couple of things, a couple of comments about Zion. Zion is where God dwells and demonstrates the perfection of his beauty to the faithful and where he scorns the rage of unbelievers. He laughs at them. Zion is where the tribe of Jacob will have their ungodliness removed finally when the Messiah takes away their sins. Do you know who lives in Zion? I love this statement in Psalm 15 too. Whoever has a blameless life does what is right, and speaks the truth from his heart. Those are the people that live in Zion. Those who love God's name live there. All who are enrolled in heaven live in Zion. The spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect by faith live there. Do you know what happens there? It's the place where God's holy and awesome name is exalted above all the nations in the praises of his people who love him. Where believers rejoice in their salvation and all the righteous judgments of God. It's where the Lord decrees the blessing of eternal life to believers, it says in Psalm 133.3. It's the place where God's Messiah is proven to be God's chosen and priceless stone that will cause some people to stumble because of their disobedience. And yet the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Romans 9.33 Folks, Zion is a place where God's people can find confidence in the sovereign reign of the Lord of the universe. Look again at verse 6 and 7. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Salah. But remember something. In God's presence is also a graphic picture of power and judgment. Note the Old Testament idea of the nations of the world and the earth itself trembling and melting when God simply utters His voice. 
The Old Testament is filled with references to God's great sovereign power in this world. The Lord of hosts is a special name for God. In this psalm here, it's actually Yahweh of hosts. Because he is the Lord Almighty. He is the Lord All-Powerful. That's what causes rest in him. It's a name, Lord of hosts, that designates Yahweh as the sovereign king in this world. When Yahweh didn't go into the battle for Israel, the fight always ended in failure. And the reason we say that he's the sovereign Lord of hosts is because he's not only the head of Israel's armies, he's the head of all the armies in existence. The head of every heavenly army, the head of every cosmic army, and the head of every earthly army. Yahweh wasn't just merely one warrior god among the leading warrior gods of the nations. He's the one absolute supreme god. Yahweh is king even of the armies of all the mighty empires of Israel's enemies. That's a challenging thought, isn't it? This is exactly the problem that the prophets faced with God's sovereignty. Why does God use these mighty armies of Israel's enemies to punish Israel in their rebellion against God? Listen, folks, not only was Yahweh the king of those nations that he brought against Israel to reduce her to captivity in her rebellion, but then God judged those same nations for their sinfulness in attacking his people. That is sovereignty. Listen to what the prophet Habakkuk writes as he wrestles with God, using the Chaldeans as his chastening rod against Judah. God speaking, I think it's verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. All kings, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. And then his mind, the Chaldean's mind, changes, and he transgresses, he commits offense, imputing this power to his Chaldean god. How dare they? Then Habakkuk says, 
Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment, and you, O Rock, have marked them for correction. Habakkuk struggles in his faith when he sees the wicked Chaldeans flagrantly violating God's law and distorting his justice at every level without any fear of divine intervention. And Habakkuk is asking, why is God allowing the iniquity against Judah to go unpunished? You know, Habakkuk's a light a lot like us, isn't he? He doesn't quite understand the complexities of God's sovereignty. But he's so much like we are. And then when God reveals his intention to use the Chaldeans as his rod of justice against unrepentant Judah, Habakkuk is even more baffled. Because the Babylonians are clearly more corrupt and evil, and evil than Judah will ever be. And God only has one statement as justification. He says, the just shall live by faith. The, the core teaching in the book of Romans. He says, you must live by faith, trusting God, even in the worst of chaotic troubles and circumstances. Even when the armies of your enemies are overtaking you, when I'm directing them to do so. You must live by faith because God is saying, My sovereign wisdom and goodness and power cannot be matched. They are absolutely invincible. My plan is perfect and nothing is big enough to stand in the way of its ultimate fulfillment. It doesn't matter how it looks to Habakkuk. God is still on the throne as the Lord of history, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all the armies of Israel's enemies. Faith is a refusal to panic in the midst of any kind of troubling circumstances. Natural, cosmic, divine, or satanic. And though it may seem to us at times that God is slow to wrath, all iniquity, he promises, will be punished eventually. In spite of the circumstances that Habakkuk is so concerned about, God is the worthiest object of faith, and the righteous man will trust in him faithfully at all times. The righteous Man is the one who says, God is my refuge and my strength and an ever-present help in trouble, no matter what kind of trouble he sees coming. And this is exactly the idea of sovereignty we see in Psalm 46. Look at verse 8 in the last stanza here. Come, behold the works of the Lord. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. 
Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Though everything seems to be in chaos, the nations are in an uproar, kingdoms are about ready to collapse, and all God has to do is utter his voice and the earth melts. Nothing is stable. The psalmist is challenging us to look and see what desolations have been caused by great disasters and wars that have come about as a result of divine judgment on the earth. Let the inner response of horror and shock from these disasters from divine judgment sink into your heart as you view the desolation. Everything is shaky, even the earth. Everything except God and those who seek His refuge, strength, and protection. Verse 9 says, He maketh wars to cease. God is the one who makes wars to cease and to end. God is the only remedy for war, and in his good time, war will cease and there will be peace. So in the meantime, the church, the believing, trusting community, has a promise direct from God, assuring them that God's strength and God's promise is for us. He is our refuge and help in times of trouble. The control of war and the chaos it brings is beyond human ability, human ability to comprehend. And so there's only one word of counsel, counsel from Psalm 46, and it's simply, Be still and know that I am God. Well, what are we supposed to be still about? The idea of be still here is, is a command that more literally means drop it. Abandon your concern. Just just leave it alone. Don't hang on to your fear and anxiety in the midst of trouble and chaos. I am your refuge, strength, and help in any kind of trouble. You won't figure it out, so... Be discerning and recognize that I am God in every circumstance of life. I am the one who orchestrates the desolation when the armies of Israel's enemies overrun her and bring desolation upon her rebellion so that she'll return to me. And I am the one who stops the desolation. I break the bow, I shatter the arrow, and I burn the shields. I am the cause and the consequence and the cure for desolation. What an amazing idea that is. I am the cause and the consequence and the cure for desolation. Remember now in your New Testament... God would say, just like I'm the cause and the consequence and the cure for salvation. 
And I'm the one who orchestrated the life and the circumstances of Jesus, my Lamb. No matter how you perceive New Testament history or try to figure out my sovereignty and the death of my precious Lamb, it wasn't Judas's betrayal. It wasn't the chief priests plotting against Jesus. It wasn't Pilate's indifference as to what might happen to Jesus. It wasn't the schemes of Satan that ultimately put Jesus on the cross. It's the same idea as Psalm 46. It was God's perfect and timely orchestrating of all the people and the events that sent Jesus to the cross to accomplish what God had always determined that he would do. And the psalm ends by returning to the theme and the refrain, The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of armies, Yahweh of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Remember that Luther found himself contemplating his unshakable trust in the invincibility of the Lord in this psalm. In the midst of every adversity, and he had many, he found God to be his defender, never failing. When he faced dark and troubling times, or when he became terribly discouraged, he would turn to his co-worker, co-worker, Philip Melanchthon, and he'd say, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. And together they would sing, A sure stronghold, our God is he, a timely shield and weapon. Our helper he will be, and set us free from every ill that can happen. So now this morning, as New Life Church... Let's sing a mighty fortress to the praise of God because he is with us and he is for us. He has promised to powerfully and miraculously preserve and defend his church and his word against every kind of trouble and chaos that the world can bring. Against the gates of hell, Jesus said, against the relentless hatred of the devil, and against the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. God has established for us the righteous life of His perfect Lamb, Jesus Christ, who has conquered all of those. So let's praise His name again in song. Pray with me, will you? Father, help us to hear the counsel of Your entire Word. Help us to believe and trust in you even more. Help us to be challenged by the extent of your sovereignty and see you as a gracious, merciful, loving God who asks his people to seek his help and refuge in times of trouble. Father, you are glorious Be lifted up in our hearts as we sing this song now. Help us be reminded of the second verse where we're challenged to agree that Jesus is your lamb, the perfect sacrifice for us. In Christ's name, amen.